All right, let's test your audio. For you, why don't you name five spices that we will see if we open your spice drawer at home? Okay, five spices that I've got at home would be cumin and coriander. I will have a bunch of chili flakes, cardamom, and allspice. You sound good. Let's rock. Hey everyone, I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm a chef by trade and hospitality professional. By day, I head up Rachel Ray's culinary operations and co-founded her cooking and kids charity called Yummo. Five years ago, I had the idea to put together a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Hence, the name Beyond the Plate. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you listened before, we're so glad you're back. We hope this episode inspires you to cook or, like the chefs we feature, make a difference in your community. And we're grateful to our partners who make this podcast a reality. With that... This episode is brought to you by a new partner, our friends at Graduate Hotels. Super psyched to give a warm, hospitable welcome to Graduate. See what I did there, Ian? Hospitality Hotel. I see what you did there. I'm picking up what you're putting down. I'm actually really pumped for this one, Cappy. Randomly, I know I've told you this story, so I'm telling all our listeners this story. I went into a graduate hotel in Knoxville, Tennessee over the summer, just out of a whim with my family. And the staff was so friendly. The decor was so cool that we all were like, we have to come back and stay at one of them. And now they're a partner of ours. So I am so pumped for this one. Yes. Love it. Everyone, that was our executive producer, Ian. And as he experienced and was explaining... Each graduate hotel has a unique design inspired by its local college, various campus legends, and the town's history. So think custom bulldog carpets for Yale and New Haven. Think Dolly Parton artwork in Nashville, an exact replica of Michael Jordan's University of North Carolina dorm room in Chapel Hill, which sounds pretty sick. I kind of want to check out that property. It does. I was looking on their website and they even have rooms that are like bunk beds, which I feel like my twin boys would love. Or Cappy, want a bunk? We bunking up. All right, let's do it. Yeah, I guess we're bunking up. But besides being the States, though, Cappy, uh, they now have a UK presence as well. I mean, the brand started in the States, but recently expanded internationally into Oxford and Cambridge in the UK, two of the world's more prestigious university towns, if you ask me, which is a nice fit for today's podcast guest. Yeah, strong episode this week with the globally renowned and UK-based chef Otto Lange. Anyhow, they have the Randolph Hotel by Graduate Hotels right in the heart of Oxford, which is home to the cozy Morse Bar, and the Graduate Cambridge, which the hotel is right on River Camp. And you know we don't have a partner if they don't have a great sense of giving back to their community. So props to our friends at Graduate. They've become incredible partners to the communities they're located in, holding food drives, hosting holiday events, donating proceeds of happenings to local charities and providing meaningful career opportunities to both students and locals. I love it. I love how much our partners are involved in their communities. Yeah, totally. Me too. To learn more about Graduate Hotels, go to graduatehotels.com and follow them on Instagram at Graduate Hotels. Graduate, we thank you. One more thing. We have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch. You can find a link in your podcast player or go to our website, beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Head on over and check out our hats, tees, hoodies, and more. Again, that's beyondtheplaypodcast.com. Enjoy this week's episode. Today's guest is an Israeli-born British chef, restaurateur, and food writer. He's the chef patron of five Atulangi delis, as well as the Nopi and Rovi restaurants in London. He's authored nine best-selling and multi-award-winning cookbooks, and if you're like me, they grace multiple tables and shelves around your house. And has been a weekly columnist for the Saturday Guardian for over 15 years and a regular contributor to the New York Times. He's been a champion of vegetables, which has led to what some call the Atulangi effect. Please enjoy this extra good episode as we go beyond the plate <laughs> with Chef Yotam Atolengi. Chef, who's going to clue everyone in listening why I called this episode extra good before we even started? First, thank you for having me. Shall I call you Cappy? Yeah. Extra Good Things is the name of the latest book that has my name on it. And Extra Good Things is the book that I've co-written with Noor Murad, who is a talented young chef that works in my test kitchen. She's from Bahrain. Or actually, she's mixed heritage. She was born and raised in Bahrain to a Bahraini dad and an English mom. We've been 
trying to figure out what was going to be our test kitchen. So the test kitchen is a space in London where I, it's like a food lab, but it's not very high tech. It's actually quite low tech. It's meant to look like anybody's, every, anybody's home kitchen, more or less. So there's more things in it, but it's not, there isn't anything you and I won't have in our kitchen. There's no expensive gadgets. And we essentially, during lockdown and the last few years, we've been spending a lot of time creating dishes that have an extra element in them, an extra good thing. And that could be anything from a sauce to a drizzle, to a marinade, to a sprinkle, to a flavored oil, to a pickle. So those are things that are part and parcel of a particular recipe. You cook the recipe, but when you finish cooking, you can put the recipe aside, eat it, but you're also left with something extra. And that extra thing is the beginning of the next meal. Let's just say, oh, today Nora and I have demonstrated a recipe for a polenta dish. So it's a baked polenta with a bechamel sauce. And on top, the risotto tomatoes. So cherry tomatoes that are cooked in olive oil with a bit of vinegar. And then as they are cooked and cooled down, we add za'atar, fresh herbs, and this can go in a jar and stay in your fridge for three, four, five days. So next time you want to cook some, or you want to eat something, you don't need to get all fresh ingredients and stuff from scratch. You have an extra good thing, and then you can use that to spoon over a roast potato with some tahini sauce, or if you can, you can put on toast. You can put it over a bowl of rice, etc. So the book is full of extra good things. I love it. I love it. You're making me as hungry as I get when I look and read through all of your books. So I could already tell this episode is going to be extra good. Okay, so I talk to people young and old. I was actually just talking to an incredible chef here in Chicago where I'm based. People all over the world and they know you, your brand. Some people know your restaurants, some know your books, some know your writing. Some know your YouTube videos from the Otto Lange Test Kitchen, which for the listener, let's start referring to that as OTK to save us, you know, a little bit. <laughs> Why do you think so many people around the world are attracted to Otto Lange? I've been asked this question before. I suppose it's got to do with a bunch of factors. One of them would be the focus on vegetables. So I started publishing recipes that had vegetables in their center about yeah, 15 years ago when I started the new vegetarian column for The Guardian. We were already seeing, well, obviously the last couple of decades have been incredibly transformational in the sense that vegetables really migrated to the center of so many people's plates, whether they did it worry about their health, about the planet, and a bunch of other factors. But people are keen on eating more vegetables, and they were looking for ways to make vegetables taste good. And it has kind of become my mission to make vegetables taste good, and I would do anything in my arsenal to make vegetables taste good in terms of ways of preparing them and the way they come together with different flavors that are juxtaposed and borrowing from different culinary cultures in, in order to make them good. I think that would be one of them. It's modernizing the approach to vegetables and really taking that very serious. I think that's one aspect. The other aspect that there's something very generous about the way we cook, I cook. There are bold and generous flavors. You get a lot of contrast, both visual and in terms of the flavors. The platters are big. It is very easy to see and understand when you see an Ottolenghi platter. Before the days of social media, because we go back that long, I was displaying food in a kind of way that a generation that does use social media, especially Instagram, where food is displayed in a particular way, has already been shown. So I think it's a, it's very contemporary in a way, but also it draws on a lot of on many food traditions. So we're not reinventing the wheel, just showing it in a new light. I love that. Before we get into all of your incredible career, I want to talk about how we got here. I have a friend who has a songwriting podcast, and I always laugh because at the beginning of his episodes, he says to his guest, you were born. And then he just is silent and lets them talk. But you grew up in Jerusalem, huh? Yeah, I grew up in Jerusalem in the 1970s and 1980s. So you can figure out how old I am, more or less. Yeah, Jerusalem, I'm sure it's one of those places that people have a whole lot of associations when you think about it, whether you visited or you haven't. It was very dynamic. It still is in terms of the culinary traditions that mix up in Jerusalem or that meet in Jerusalem, whether they mix up or not, it depends. So it's got a very strong traditional Palestinian food culture. And then it's got the foods of Jews that have immigrated over the last hundred odd years. And it's super interesting. It's very intense. It's very complicated, but it's never boring. And I think this is the kind of experience that I've had growing up in the city, that intensity. And yeah, in terms of food, there was everything there. So I have been very lucky to have been exposed to the food of my parents. My parents are from a European descent. So my father's 
from an Italian Jewish family and my mother is from a German Jewish family and in some ways we had at home very European food, things that would be very familiar to people who know about European food or have had it growing up. But I would say the formative influence that I had on my food came from other cuisines. And those were the things that you could eat out on the streets, whether it was Sephardi Jews that came from the Yemen or North Africa, their foods were very dominant or Palestinians. And I think that all these elements together have shaped my palate, although I wouldn't say that I cook necessarily Israeli food as it is perceived these days in, in different kind of parts of the world. What was your childhood like? What kind of kid were you? I was a good Jewish boy. I did what I needed to do. I, mean, I come from an academic family, so my father was a university professor and my mom was a high school teacher. I wasn't really into sports. I was more geeky. I was into Lego and building stuff. I was a good student. I was interested in cooking. To a certain degree, I wasn't in the kitchen all the time, but I was really interested in what's going on, how it's being done. I was very much into kind of the current affair and politics. I still am. I was aware of what's going on. We were quite a left-wing house, so I was quite political. My mom was very political. I was uh, at quite a young age, I got involved in what she was doing. So who cooked at home? Both my parents cooked. Yeah, they both cooked equally, I would say. So my mom wasn't at home as much as my father was because he could work more from home. But both of them cooked. And I would point out that my father comes from a northern Italian family. He cooked food that was very different to the way people would perceive my food. So very minimal. I would call myself a maximalist and he's a minimalist. Although I've moderated that over the years. And I think now that I work with younger chefs, I always try to ask them to hold back, not to throw everything in a dish. But when I was younger, I was probably a bit more like that. My father could make a delicious dish out of potatoes, rosemary, olive oil, and garlic. And he would think that was the best thing you could absolutely have. So he had a really intuitive understanding of ingredients and a very, it was all about the individual ingredients and what they do and how to make them the best way you can. Very Italian. Very Italian, very Northern Italian, I would say. And I learned a lot from his attitude to food, his patience, his ideas. My mother was more adventurous and she would cook food from more food from around the world. She had books from around the world. She cooked curries and she would make a tiramisu. And she would always have like a cookbook open with something from different cultures. So she was very adventurous in that respect. Both were very good cooks. How old were you when you were kind of snooping around the kitchen? Young? Yeah, I was like a teens, but yeah, I don't want to create the impression that I spent a lot of time in the kitchen. My move, migrating towards the kitchen happened later when I started university and I moved to Tel Aviv and I, my first apartment that I lived with my boyfriend was in near the Carmel market in, in Tel Aviv. And it was literally a five minute walking distance. And I just fell in love with the ingredients. I had no one to cook for me at that point because I left home. So the necessity and the opportunity made me want to cook all the time. And that's when I started getting really excited about cooking and getting to know the ingredients. How old were you when you left home? I was like in my early 20s. I know you said it gives you satisfaction when someone takes one of your recipes and kind of carries it on with their family and things like that. Are there any family dishes that do that for you or like bring back certain memories? Oh, yeah. A lot of things. For instance, both my parents used to make my Italian grandmother's zucchinis. So she used to take it's a kind of a, almost like a, it's a condiment, but it's just something that she always used to make it like for family meals. It's essentially it's sliced zucchinis, fried in olive oil, and then lightly pickled in, in vinegar with rosemary or with sage. Or But essentially it was just like something very simple, but always delicious. Also, she used to make polenta. My dad used to make polenta every time I make that reminds me of home. Yeah, there's a bunch of things. My mom used to do stuffed peppers with rice, and I do that. That reminds me of her. Yeah, just to name a few. So at what point did you decide to move to London to study pastry at Le Cordon Bleu? First thing, I moved to Amsterdam, and I lived a few years in Amsterdam. And then I, when I was in Amsterdam, I finished my university degree. I studied literature and philosophy, and I kept on doing that remotely for a couple of years while I was there. And then in 1997, I moved to London and I started thinking about my next 
career. Why did you move to London? My boyfriend wanted to study business and I wanted to learn how to cook. And I knew there was the Cordon Bleu cookery school here and he did a business degree and we didn't want to go back yet. So we just moved here. And London at that particular time was starting to emerge as a place where you can learn how to cook seriously and get some good experience in restaurants. And I gave that a go. So I did the Cordon Bleu. I didn't do the diploma. I just studied some pastry and also the main kitchen cuisine. And then I started working in restaurants. So after about, I did about six months of studies and then I started working. And my first job in a kitchen was as a pastry chef. And I ended up doing quite a lot of that in the first few years of my career in kitchens. I did pastries and then I also worked in pastry shops and bakeries later on. And I specialized in that. When did you realize you wanted to become a chef? Did you go to Le Cordon Bleu thinking like, I want to be a chef? Or did you go because you love cooking and food? I wanted to know that I wanted to give this a go, but I wasn't quite certain that is going to be what I will do for a living. I was in this kind of stage. I was in my late 20s. I thought I kind of ditched the career opportunity university because I could have had a I think I could have stayed there I was already on my way to a career there and also I worked as a news editor in a newspaper so I thought although all those options are open but perhaps I want to see I want to check out something else and this is when I came and did the course and I tried work I started working and it took me a long time to kind of acknowledge that this is what I want to do and in some ways my Career as a chef was not typical at all. My movements in kitchens have been very atypical because I haven't spent tons of times in kitchens. I spent my, even now I don't cook in the kitchens anymore and I haven't for a long time. I spend a lot of time thinking about food, conceptualizing, talking, and you know, and I understand in some ways I've never been completely like a typical chef. You've gone through all the stages. I've been dipping in and out and that kind of uh, represents my career. Got it. So you worked as a pastry chef after school. Did you ever think you were only going to be a pastry chef or did you know you wanted to branch out? Yeah. So I worked quite a few years in patisserie doing pastries. And then when we were opening our, so we're talking like 20 years ago, 2002, myself and, a bit, and my business partner, Noam, wanted to open a pastry shop or a bakery. There was, it was a kind of a concept that kind of had a little bit of different things, but baking would have been right at its center. And Sammy Tamimi, who became our third partner, wasn't really involved in that. We were already knew each other. We were very good friends, but he wasn't part of the original plan. He didn't want to join, although we asked him. He was, he, I think he was a little bit nervous about how well this will all go. And he didn't want to leave his previous job for something that seems a bit like risky. And then about only a couple of months before we were about to open, Sammy said, well, listen, I'm going to join you guys. And he did. And then we changed the whole thing, changed a bit from what was going to be predominantly a bakery, ended up being something that had both a very strong savory salad side to go and an equally impressive pastry side. And so I was in charge of the pastry and Sammy was in charge of the food. And we spent a lot of time in the kitchen working out menus together. And I got involved more in what he does and he got involved in what I do. And it became, the lines were blurred not too long after we opened and how we started working. But event initially was supposed to be just a pastry shop. So you opened your first deli in 2002. So for those of us who haven't been, can you take us into one of the Atalangi delis? Like paint a picture for us. Yeah, I think especially for an American audience, the word deli often is not doesn't really conjure up the right kind of images. Yeah, you think like you Cats think like an American something. deli. <laughs> yeah, so it's nothing like that. It's very it's fresh food that's prepared every single day, and it's kind of a similar way that you would maybe do at home. There is platters of cooked vegetables and salads that are displayed in, vertically in with different heights and there's beautiful arrangements of flowers around them. So it sits there in the open and it's not refrigerated. We can do that in England. And there's this kind of mountain of beautifully looking salad as if you present a feast at an event or at home. And that is mirrored by something similar with cakes and pastries and sweets, meringues, tarts, small cakes, cookies, a bunch of things. But again, it's not like they don't sit in jars or in containers. They sit on in big bowls, beautiful bowls. We spend a lot of time choosing the bowls and the platters and the plates on which we display them. And again, it's vertical. So when you look, your whole vision is filled up with those 
pastries as you walk in. So it's a visual assault as you walk in. And we spend a lot of time perfecting that visual effect. But I only can realize that in hindsight, it's very much like a Middle Eastern fruit and vegetable market or maybe a market anywhere in the world where you spend a lot of time kind of polishing your apples and your oranges and you're like stacking up your herbs and spraying them with water so they look all fresh and the smells come out and stuff. All these things that Sammy and I had when we were growing up in Jerusalem and later on I moved to Tel Aviv and it's the art of presenting your food as a grocer. We do that but with prepared food. I love that. So that first deli was pretty, correct me if I'm wrong, pretty popular from the get-go and what made you decide it was time to expand? So yeah, it was very popular. It was in Notting Hill and we opened in 2002. We were really surprised how popular it became and how quickly it became as popular as that. I think going back to what we discussed earlier, it was a real fresh approach to vegetables. And it was also a fresh approach to patisserie, which was very not French at all, very informal, but totally fresh. Like we would bake everything in the morning and place it on the counter and nothing would be like wrapped in cellophane. You would have some of those things around the till, but essentially everything would be really fresh and we would bake and cook a few times a day and that was the advantage of being very busy very early on was the fact that we could constantly replenish and bake and cook new stuff and still keep the display fresh looking and then we opened another one after a couple of years and we grew to now we have seven locations in london which i would say that's very moderate growth in set in 20 years so we we took it very easy every two or three years we would open something else but something that felt a bit different so that the next one was in islington and that was a kind of a hybrid of a restaurant in the deli so we've expanded the concept we added a big long table at the very end so people could buy their food and sit down and then we also started serving food from the kitchen and later on we opened restaurants and so so things have just evolved over time but they started off with that Notting Hill Deli. So you have five delis now plus the two restaurants but none in the U.S. Are you ever going to open here? Don't worry, I won't tell anyone. I'll edit it out. Maybe. <laughs> it's a question that I'm asked almost every day. I suppose it's the answer is, is no until it's going to be yes. It's just, it's all about opportunities and prices that you pay for all sorts of decisions. I think it's quite telling that so far we've only had places in London. That's just the way we operate, me, and I'm one of a few business partners. So there's Sammy, there's Noam, we have Cornelia. We all make decisions together about the business and it's, it needs to suit a lot of people before we could do such a move, and it, it never happens, but it, it might still happen. Since we're talking about London, let's take a second to give some love to our friends at Ford's Gin. If you're like me and you enjoy a good gin and tonic or Negroni, or maybe you're a martini person, regardless, seeing a bunch of different gin bottles at a bar, restaurant, or liquor store can be a little daunting. Ford's Gin was crafted by bartenders, for bartenders, and at-home bartenders alike to make a really good gin cocktail. Well, speaking of bartenders, I'm definitely more of that at-home bartender, Cappy. Mine is a gin, tonic, and grapefruit. But let's get to the professional bartenders, and uh, last week... Epic Beyond the Drink episode. What was he made? It was like a, a yogurt, like sauce syrup thing you had going on there. Yeah, dude. Sean Licklighter. What a boss. Lemon verbena yogurt syrup in his cocktail. So good. And you could catch more Beyond the Drinks every other week right here on Beyond the Plate. But back to Ford's. Simon Ford leveraged input from bartender friends to create the recipe based of the flavor profiles of gin classic gin cocktails, and the botanicals needed to make one gin that would hit all of those taste points. So he ended up creating this new style of a classic London dry gin. And speaking of London, should we drop some knowledge on fours in London? Since we've got our first UK chef today? Yes, sir, we do indeed. Part of the brilliant Ford's gin equation was teaming up with a distiller that could properly execute Simon's vision. So he collaborated with eighth generation master distiller Charles Maxwell of Thames Distiller in London. Big deal, by the way. Ford's uses a mix of nine botanicals, starting with a traditional base of juniper and coriander seed, and then it's balanced out by some citrus, a little bit of florals, and spices. Why, my mouth is watering a little bit. All right, we'll let you get to this episode, but big shout out to Forrest for always having the bartending community in mind and their sense of giving back by supporting events and fundraisers. To learn more about Ford's Gin, go to FordsGin.com and follow them on social media at Ford's Gin. Please drink responsibly. Ford's London Dry Gin, 45% ABV, Brown Foreman, Louisville, Kentucky. Ford's Gin is a registered trademark. Ford's Gin, 
we thank you. Is there a moment you realized or felt that you made it as a chef? I think not, because I still don't, of course, I made it in so many ways. I've won awards and I've sold millions of books worldwide, etc. But I think there's something about, and it's probably quite healthy, you know, it's like people talk about, actors talk about like stage fright and that they, every time they go on stage, they have that. I don't have that problem, actually. I quite easily go on stage, but the equivalent would be for me, the fact that I've never, it's never a done deal. I never quite feel that, oh, that's what I've got is great and what I've achieved is great. And I'm, I always think, oh, yeah, but, you know, everybody does that now. And it's a bit like, oh, it's just maybe it's a healthy instinct. Maybe it's just some kind of a deep imposter syndrome or something. But I never quite feel that, you know, whatever, everything that has come my way, I've totally earned it. Interesting. How are you with balance? like work life, home life. You're a busy guy. I'm good now. I'm much better than I used to be. So it's all thanks to the kids. 10 years ago, Carl and I had Max almost 10 years ago. And then now we've also got Flynn, who's seven years old. So we've got two young boys. And when we had the kids, I decided to work less. And I actually acted on that. So I spent, I mean, if you ask them, I'm probably not, I'm very neglectful, but I think if they Daddy, you're going to work to, again. Yeah, <laughs> I know. What's going on here? I have four-year-old twins at home, so. Okay, so you know what that's like. I cherish it because I know like Max is 10, in a, oh, he's not 10, but he will be 10 soon. In two years time, he won't want to see me. So that I'm, I'm very happy to, as long as, he, as that's the case, then that I'm, I cherish it. But seriously, I was doing some TV shows when Max was born for Channel 4 here in the UK. And I loved it. I traveled all over the Mediterranean and I was discovering cuisines and ingredients, but mostly people. And I, I loved everything about it, but it just took me away for the whole summer, every summer. Every 45 minutes or half an hour episode is like a week. So it's like, that's just the whole summer gone. And I just thought, what's the point of having children if you're gonna not going to have your summer holidays with them? I just decided not to do that. So I do spend time at home. I'm there in the morning when they are, before they go to school. And I'm here most evening when they come back. So I've rebalanced things. Nice. What three words would you use to describe Yotama Tolengi? I would say, well, three is a lot. I am... We can do two if you want. No, it's okay. I'll just take the challenge. I'll take the challenge. <laughs> I am nurturing. I am... I ne that's a description. It's not a word, but I never take anything for granted. So I'm maybe skeptical. That would be a word. And I am quite... I can't sit still inside. Like I've got always looking for the next project. So I guess that is not a word, but you, someone will find a good word in English to describe that. <laughs> what would Max and Flynn, what words would they use to describe dad? They would say I'm very kind, but when they say kind, it's the opposite of strict because they have the, they, they use these two words to describe their teachers. They go, oh, she's kind, oh, she's strict, or he's kind, he's strict, which, <laughs> and so I'm, not the strict one in our family. I can't bring myself to be strict. So I'm a pushover as it comes to the kids. It's very clearly my job to be the pushover with those two. Yeah. But what about in the test kitchen? Like in work, are you strict there? No, I'm not strict. The test kitchen, it's very different. I think in the test kitchen, again, I'm a, I'm not a tough manager of people, but I think people don't understand what it is they need to do to make me happy or create something that I would approve of. So that I think there's something understated that's very clear. I'm not a confrontational person, but I, I don't hide what I think. So I normally, I, I say it, yeah, there is this honesty and people understand it, but I'm not scary. I don't think anyone would tell you that when I walk into the restaurants, they shake in their boots. There's someone else in the, co there's Cornelia, who's the company manager that people adore, but they're also terrified of in equal measure because she's the one who would tell them immediately if they did something wrong. I would wait a little bit and, and uh, yeah. Got it. Are your kids into food? They love food. Do they? Do yeah, they critique they really you? Do. All the time. They critique everyone, but they critique me, yes. And especially, they're very, like, Carl, my husband, does most of the cooking at home, and he's a really good cook, and he does incredible home cooking for them. And I've said somewhat to someone, I can't remember, this week, and I've seen it in writing, and I thought, like, did I really say that? But it's absolutely true. The worst thing that they can say to you is it was better at school. Because they get fed at school and they get like, I know, they get like fish fingers and you make like a beautiful fish stew or fish pie. And they go, oh, it was school's version is better. And I go like, 
how could that even be possible? But I guess it's a compliment to the school. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You've written how your style of cooking has changed over the years. I know earlier on in this episode, we talked about kind of like what you've done for vegetables and things like that. But how would you say your style of cooking has changed? It's changed in when I look at the old books and then when I also look at old menus in our restaurants, I think I used to be much more eager to really just put a lot out there. There was this maximalism that I mentioned. It's just like I wanted to make sure that it's all out there. Lots of herbs, lots of things. I mean, now I find myself thinking once or twice before I add something, because I think one of the things that was quite transformative for me was when I took on to write the book called Simple that was published in 2018. And I thought to my, I asked myself the question, can you create an Ottolenghi dish that someone would recognize an Ottolenghi dish with fewer ingredients and simpler processes and things that are less demanding of the home cook? I think it's, it worked out and it taught me a real important lesson that I'm trying hard to kind of instill in everybody at the desk kitchen right now that it, it's very culture specific. Like, for instance, like I mentioned, that Italian food culture, especially for some parts of Italy, it is about like three great ingredients put together with a, in a thoughtful way, in a considered manner. And that's all you need to do. It's just about that. But then you get you go travel to other parts of the world and you can have like 12 spices that go into a spice space and cooked in oil. And you've got this kind of explosion of flavor. And it's not better or worse it's just different it's different ways of looking in food and they're all as good as each other and each cuisine you judge by its own merits by its own standards you judge italian food by its own standards and you, you judge malaysian food by its own standards you don't apply the same measurements and i think that for me i now see my cooking as something that i could actually so there is this kind of ottolenghi what we understand as Otolenghi food, when I tried to explain to you during this conversation, that intensity and the bold gestures and the platters and the contrast, etc. But even by those standards, you can take a step back and have three elements rather than five. You can have something which you can cook in half an hour and put together, but there's still an element of surprise. There's still a left of field idea. There's still an unusual combination, but with less effort. And so this is the way I tend to go more these days. That's neat. I like that. I remember when I, one of the first nights when I started culinary school, we had a, a reception at the president of the school's house and the president of the school at the time was a globally regarded, renowned chef. And I remember him standing up there saying, when you're cooking in the kitchen and you have a dish, you should think, what one ingredient can I remove and still have that dish totally. speak volumes. Yeah. There's people who cook with, lot, like you said, lots of ingredients. And for some people, it's like more is more. And for some people, it's like less is more. So. I totally agree with this question. And I ask the same, myself the same question. What can we remove? And I also, I find myself irritatingly asking my colleagues, what could we remove? Could we possibly remove that from that dish? And people fight for their dishes and for all the right reasons, because something has gone through a process and you love it and that's good. But also you need to think how it lands on the other side, like how it lands at people's kitchens. Do they really want five herbs or maybe three or two would have been enough and still gave them very satisfactory results? So these are the kind of conversations we have. It's interesting. So people have said things like you've made the world love vegetables. How does that make you feel? Great. For me, the most exciting thing is, yes, is dishes that people cook all over and over again in their homes. That I meet someone, they go, you know, what? my mom used to cook that for me. Or I started cooking that for my kids and now we cook that all the time. Those kind of things makes me feel great because books come and go and, and visits to restaurants come and go. But if someone has a dish in their repertoire that becomes their dish, it means that you really have make an impact. And with vegetables, obviously, because I think... In the West, let's say Europe and North America and some other parts of the world, vegetables have been forgotten, relegated and put in a position where they were not really something that people celebrated. And for all the wrong reasons, there's nothing inherently better with other foodstuffs. And in some ways, vegetables are way more attractive to a cook because you can do more with them. There's more transformational possibilities with vegetables. You can A cauliflower is way more interesting for me than a fillet steak because there's just so much to do in terms of techniques. You can eat it raw, you can cook it lightly, you can cook it heavily, you can slow cook it, you can grate it, you can turn it into a steak, you can turn it to a million things and it will just keep on giving. 
the same doesn't apply to meat or even a fish. Not to say that they're not delicious, but I'm just, just recalibrating here. So this is a great thing. And again, like all the recipes, I can't, sure I can't count how many recipes for cauliflowers I've published all over, over the years, many. And the fact that is out there and people can choose to make those and learn to love the cauliflower makes me feel amazingly good. I love it. I'm sensing a theme, hopefully, this season of the podcast, because we had Chef Danielle Hum on as well from, you know, Love in Madison Park, who's gone more plant forward. And he spoke about his love of vegetables. And he's doing it. And I have to say that I haven't been to Eleven Madison Park in its vegan incarnation, but I've been to his other restaurants, to Nomad, and they did an amazing things with vegetables at that point, And I loved it. So in the new book, I see the word autolangify. To autolangify something, to make something feel unequivocally autolangy. To add flair, a slight twist to the familiar, a surprise in the mouth. I've got to ask, and I apologize because you've likely gotten this question, but I know aubergine eggplants are your thing, which eggplant recipe must we attack? Oh gosh, that is just so difficult for me to answer <laughs> this question. I have to say, this definition of autolengify that you just quoted, <laughs> nor put it in the Urban Dictionary, and I'm glad it's there. It's great. We hopefully one day we'll get to Wikipedia, fingers crossed. <laughs> but I think the aubergine, there is a recipe in Extra Good Things that I just love, and it requires burning an eggplant or grilling an eggplant, which is, I think, a technique that people who are not, who haven't done it before, may find intimidating. But actually, it's a very easy thing to do, and you could do it in multiple ways. You can actually grill it on a barbecue. It's just taking a whole eggplant. You can do it in your oven. You can do it on a char grill pan over in your stove in the kitchen while you put on the extraction so it doesn't smell the whole kitchen. There's a multiple of ways to do it and they're all as gratifying as the others. Some of them will give you a more smoky result and some of them will be less smoky. But I think once you can master baba ganoush, and that is just a generic name to a bunch of salads and dishes that involved smoking an aubergine, then I think you'll be a, very, a much happier person. And so will the people around you. So that, that would be the one that I would really recommend for people to try. We have a recipe here that involves this technique. And then the pulp, the aubergine flesh, turns into a pickle. And it's got fenugreek. It's like it's a sweet and soured fenugreek. So it's got a kind of a curryish like flavor. And you put it in a jar and you put olive oil on top and you can keep it for a few days in the fridge. So you get this kind of, uh, it's slightly pickled. It's not like pickle, but it gives you this kind of acidity and sweetness that you want. I love that. And that, that serves uh, with yogurt or with tahini, or you can serve it and to accompany anything you like. It goes well, really well with meat as well. It is a huge achievement for someone who maybe has been terrified of eggplants up until this moment. Yeah, I love that. It sounds so good. Clearly, you've inspired many people. Where do you find inspiration? Who inspires you? So I have to say that I must give credit to the team in the test kitchen because this is where all these interesting things are actually happening. And not only in the test kitchen, but also in the restaurant. So I feel like Unlike other food writers, that I feel like I'm extremely privileged in the sense that I'm surrounded with a lot of people that know so much about food. And each one has had their own journey and they bring that all into the equation, Delta Lange equation. So in the test kitchen, there's someone who's from Mauritius or Norris from Bahrain or Verena, she's got a Scottish and a German background. I mean, you've got like all these people and they've all been on these incredible journeys and all those conversations are where this inspiration comes from. I used to get a lot of inspirations from books and traveling, which I still do. But now much more of it is comes out of the chefs that I work with. That's cool. When was the last time you were inspired by a restaurant's food or, or you felt you got a little extra? I was in Greece this summer near where we were, which was in, in the Peloponnese. So it's a, the mainland of Greece. It's not one of the islands. There was a small town and there was a fish restaurant there. And they did a dish which is prawns or shrimps that are cooked in orzo or served with orzo or I don't think they call it orzo it's a little pasta that looks like rice but they have a different name for it and they made a really incredible stock out of the shrimp shells that to flavor this and I'm sure there was ouzo there as well and some I think saffron this combination of the pasta the shrimps and the ouzo and the saffron which is it's I've known these combinations before but the way they've done it was just so delicious 
it immediately wanted me to make me want to go and do it. But they've done it so perfectly well. I didn't even need to do that. I just came back and had that like almost every night. Yeah, I love that. Interesting. All right. So Atalangi Test Kitchen, extra good things with Noor Murad. Let's talk a little bit more about the book. We hit upon it at the beginning, but why this book now? You gave us the premise a little bit, but... Yeah, I think this book now, this is the best book for me to say why now, <laughs> because I think it's so off the moment, off the time, without us even planning for it to be. So it seems like in our crazy world, we're going from one crisis to the next, and we can't sit still for one second. And we can laugh about it, but it's, it could be quite tragic, and it has been tragic to many. So there was the pandemic, and then now we have an incredible cost of living crisis and people are struggling in so many ways. There's a war waging in Ukraine and there's just so many bad things happening. And I think one of the things that we learned is that we're going to be spending more and more time in the kitchen, in our own kitchens rather than restaurants. So I'm saying that as someone who runs restaurants, so I want everybody to keep on coming, but people are cooking more and more at home and learning old skills be has become a necessity. First of all, because we're cooking more at home and, and second, because we want to be able to economize and be more frugal. And this book is all about that. It's about creating condiments dishes, flavor bombs, jars that allow you to cook more frequently with more flavor. These are skills that people before us knew and had. In a German household, there would always be a sauerkraut. You wouldn't need to go to the supermarket to buy it. Although it'd be kimchi in North Africa, they'd have all sorts of harissas and flavored olive oils, etc. All Every culture would have had those things. And they would be homemade and they'd be part of the flavor profile of every singular dish that came out. I don't know too much about Korean cooking, but I can tell you that kimchi is there to flavor everything, to give it a frame. And I think what we do here is that we tell you, okay, cook a dish, but also learn something that could become a permanent feature in your kitchen. Not everybody has, not all the condiments or not all the extra good things would have a very long shelf life. Some of them would only last for three or four days in the fridge, but some of them would like would last for weeks and months. Fresh chili sauce, chili oil, quick pickles and long pickles, all sorts of dukkha and crunchy things that could go in the jar. Those are the things that you can make while you're making your dinner and would be the that would lead on to the next meal. So those tomatoes that I was talking about in za'atar oil, you make some, you put them on something else the next day. The same applies for so much, so other things. And it's such a superpower to be able to cook a meal and finish with a jar that means that tomorrow you only need to boil a pot of rice and then you spoon that on top. Whether it's a quick pickle, whether it's that aubergine that I was talking to you about, whether it's just a flavored oil that you took some ancho chili garlic you fried that, maybe you took the garlic flakes out so they sit in the jar on their own being really lovely and crispy, but the oil sits in a separate jar. And then the next day you cook your rice, maybe you blanch some vegetables, and then you, took, you take this oil and the crispy garlic slices and there's a meal. That is a kind of the proposition of the book. And I think it's just so great that we c I can defend this with all my heart because I think this is a book of the moment and it does all those things. I feel it, it's amazing. I was smiling when you were talking about the harissa because two nights ago I made one of your rose harissa pasta recipes and my four-year-old son couldn't get enough of it. And oh, I was wow, like, that's great. Yeah, it was amazing. And then the next day I took it out. There was some leftover. I was going to heat it up and he started eating it cold out of the bowl. I was like, let me heat that up, dude. There's my boy. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the second installment because the first one was Atolingi Test Kitchen Shelf Love. You say all your books are like children. Do you enjoy watching them all grow so much that you decided to have a ninth? Or <laughs> <laughs> is this process easy? Does it get easier, harder? It just becomes different. So as I described to you, generally speaking, I've the process of doing the books have become from something that I'm fully responsible and the sole person responsible to something which is way more of a group thing. To the extent that these last two books, the Autolengi Test Kitchen Cookbooks, were really pushed forward by Noor and she's done the majority of the thinking but we think about it together all the time and have conversations. So I love the fact that the books evolve. So this kind of evolution of books allows me to enjoy it afresh every time. Like, you know, Jerusalem couldn't be any more different in terms of my involvement in it than extra good things with Jerusalem was, you know, telling stories that I had to go back to my childhood to, to figure out and understand how people cooked and where things came from, etc. This is all about, this is very contemporary with how we cook today and how the different members of the 
Hell's Kitchen cook, but it's equally enjoyable to see it because it's just such a, I'm holding it now in my hands. It's just such a great experience to hold a book when you have the object. Until it's an object, it's just all in the air, images on screens and all the rest. But when you have the object, it's such a satisfying feeling. Yeah. Absolutely. Nor's your OTK director, yeah? like the director of the yeah, Desk she's, Kitchen. Yeah, she's the yeah, I'm the manager or director of the Desk Kitchen. She runs it. She's in charge of everyone. She's got an incredible palate and her, she does, she has a really intuitive understanding of food and of the Otolenghi food. And, but yeah. Awesome. I'm excited to dive further into this book for sure. Let's talk about social impact a little bit and giving back. Our podcast, as I think you know, celebrates social impact with every guest and learning how chefs and food personalities do it really keeps me and the team inspired. However, chefs choose to do it. They all have their own way. Are there any causes or charities I would love to hear more about that you work with? First of all, one of the things that we do is that each of our location is involved in its own local charities, schools, in particular libraries, etc. And we always, and this this is the, where we spend the majority of our resources that we allocate to that. Myself and Cornelia, the general manager of the whole company, always tells the managers, you know, if people come in and they are, they have a particular local charity, that would be our first port of call. Because we try to keep the restaurants and the delis part of the community, especially the delis where people come daily, restaurants less so because often they're not necessarily in a neighborhood. We try to really get involved. So over the years, we've supported sports events in the neighborhood, charitable school events, cake sales, etc. All those kind of things that happen within the community. And that happens all the time. On a more national level, we have just been created an event. We've been trying to support whatever crisis comes up and needs our help. So most recently, actually just a couple of weeks ago, we created a big event for Ukraine where all the proceedings went to buying an armored ambulance to deliver support within a war zone, within the war zone, because it's so difficult to send support to some areas within Ukraine because Russian troops just shoot down the ambulances as soon as they come to offer support and those are expensive. So in one evening, we raised nearly 100,000 pounds to buy one of these ambulances and it was one of the dads in the school where my kids go to suggested to do this we did the food the ukrainian ambassador was there a whole lot of people and we raised that money and for me that was a real important moment we did similar stuff when the war was raging in syria we did we were heavily involved in cook for syria we got all our pastry chefs to create cakes that were on the counter and every all the proceeds of these cakes went to support humanitarian help and support in syria and then not on a, so much on a day, acute crisis, but on a day-to-day, we support Amos Trust, which is a British charity that does a lot of work all over the world, in Africa, in South America, helping, especially with children, building community centers and supporting with all manner of activities. But from our perspective, mostly, and I think that's the majority of the work is they do in the West Bank with Palestinian communities. They help create community centers, work groups, activity groups for children in the West Bank and helping women's corporations. So we do that and we do a big meal every year where we, where I go with Sammy and we talk and we cook the food and we help them raise funds for their, for the Amos Trust charity. So these are the kind of some of the things that we are involved in. That's incredible. And I commend you and your whole team from a local community level to national to global. That's quite the model, the effort, the time, the funds. You're hitting all the check boxes there. I always say to people listening, whether they're in the industry or not, give what you can. It could be your voice. It could be your dollars. It could be your time. One simple social media post, whether you have a hundred followers or a million, someone's going to see that and you could be making a difference. And I love your guys' sense of community on, on a small and grand scale. We try to choose causes that mean something to us. For instance, through the work in the West Bank, I mean, Sammy and I are both from that part of the world. And it's always been important to us to fix some of the things that are going wrong. And we've done that in different ways, but this is a great way to, to do it. And the same applies to our local little things. So things that have a meaning for us would be the first place where we try to help the most. And I think any person would see something or hear of something that would be meaningful for them, resonate with them in a particular way. So for me, that is the way to judge because obviously we you get a lot of requests, 
for different things. Not everything resonates in the sa- to the same degree with you, but I think as long as you find things that make you feel like that's where you want to put your heart at, that's exactly where you need to, to, to act. I love it. I love it. All right, let's do a quick speed round and then we'll close it out with one one quick okay. question. Number one, what did you have for dinner last night? Last night, I had a yogurt chicken curry. Chicken curry made with yogurt, cilantro, and lime. Yum. Name a smell in the kitchen that you love. Melted cheese on toast. Mm, name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Oh, it's smell of the kitchen I hate. Oh, dried chilies on the grill. I just start, my eyes start to water. That's all. I can't stand it. Yeah, yeah, very quickly. What pisses you off in the kitchen? Attention, you know, like things that like spend, you spend a lot of time working on and give you very little in return. I'm not going to go into details. I don't want to offend anyone, but certain things that appear some out of the ether and you go like, oh, that's interesting. And then it takes a lot of time, but then it's just not very exciting at all. And what makes you happy in the kitchen? I love to have the kitchen to myself without anyone else. I find distraction. I, I love the meditative quality of cooking. So I want to have the whole kitchen to myself, especially no children. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a go-to snack in your pantry. A go-to snack, piccalilli or any other pickle. Piccalilli is a British pickle. So it's a bit Indian. So it's got Indians. It's inspired by Indian cooking. So it's got Indian spices like mustard seeds, turmeric, fenugreek, etc. With cheddar cheese, it shows you how long I've been living in this country. Cheddar and piccalilli on a cracker. That's so good. Yeah, interesting. All right, let's look into that. Let's close it out here. Is there anything you still want to accomplish that you haven't? I want to go to Mexico. You've never been to Mexico? No. You're going to take a trip to Mexico. Now, that's a shock. That's a shock, right? Yeah. For American, especially. (laughs) I feel like it would be quite inspirational for you. I've eaten a lot of Mexican food made by people that I think know what they're doing, but I've never been to Mexico, so I would love to travel there. It will happen. It will happen soon. We're going to keep an eye out for your Mexico trip. Please do. (laughs) All right, Chef. I appreciate your time. You're a joy to talk to. I could talk all day and listen to you go on and on about food and what to put on what and a drizzle of this and a dab of that. (laughs) It's fantastic. But best of luck with the book. I I know it's already out there and looking forward to it here too. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I really enjoy this talk. Listening to you, you've got a really such a calm voice. It makes me just want to keep on going as well. Awesome. Thanks, Chef. Have a good day. Thank you. Take care. Thanks again to Chef Yotam Adolengi. Find him on Instagram at Adolengi. That's O-T-T-O-L-E-N-G-H-I. Or at adolengi.co.uk. To learn more about Amos Trust, go to amostrust.org. We'll share a link to those websites in the episode notes and at beyondtheplaypodcast.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media at On Cappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplaypodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, and Sean Petrosia. Our digital media producer is Sarah McClellan Mead. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. And as always, a special shout out to my wife, Katie. If you do have a moment, we'd love and appreciate it if you could rate or review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gym. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.